like the Apostle Peter uh, at various times in our experience here, and uh, he would say as uh, going up to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, it's, Lord, it's good for us to be here. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to sit at the gospel table and to reflect upon the true teachings of God's word to us. This is not just a book of history. It's not just a historical account of Christ and, and uh, the prophets, um, but it's something that I believe has a special bearing to the day-to-day conduct and life of God's humble poor. This morning, the subject upon my heart is one that is uh, compelling, one that uh, is sometimes elusive, and that is the importance of unity in the house of God. The Bible is replete with examples of God's people being unified around a common goal or purpose We know, for instance, in the study of Israel of old, they would be gathered together with a a trumpet, not only in the day of worship or assembly, but the trumpet would also call them to battle, call them to wage a successful warfare in the matters uh, involved uh, with them on a day-to-day basis. Amos chapter 3, verse 3 says, How can two walk together? except they be agreed. We know uh, Solomon wrote a lot in the Proverbs and the Ecclesiastes about the significance of, of being together together, together with people of like mind, uh, with people uh, that have a, a similar goal and purpose in life. He would say uh, two are better than one, for if one falls, there's someone there to lift them up. We, we know that this principle is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. And this morning, I want particularly to direct your attention to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John in Christ's uh, high priestly prayer there, where he's going to emphasize the nature and value of unity among God's people. I love to think about what David said in Psalm chapter 133 verse 1 when he said, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How sweet it is, how how wonderful it is, how strengthening it is for God's people to dwell in a unified manner around the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's very many occasions when Jesus is described as one that would go apart to pray. He would, he would go into a mountain. He would go by the seaside. He would go and, and take periods of solitude where he and the Father would converse. Very few of those words are recorded for us in the scriptures, but it's wonderful to my mind this morning that as Jesus is approaching the cross and his six trials that he would endure he gathers his disciples in an upper room and and he prays for them and john the apostle is moved by the holy spirit to record those words for us and it's a very moving prayer it's a very uh, intimate uh, prayer it's a prayer that 
could be divided into three equal parts. The first part, he's praying for himself and, and the redemptive work that he's about to accomplish on the cross. And then he prays specifically for those disciples round about the table on that fateful night. But then he also prays for those who would believe through their word. And that includes you and me. So it's wonderful for me to think about this in those kind of terms. Now this morning I want to draw your attention to several things that he said in this prayer and compare them with other parts of the New Testament scripture that relate to the subject of the significance and the importance of unity. For instance, Jesus says in verse 11 of John chapter 17, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that are so that. That's a purpose statement. For this purpose, as it were, that they may be one as we are one. Now thinking about the unity of the church in the context of this prayer brings to bear uh, a reflection, as it were. When, when God's people are unified as we ought to be, uh, we're actually reflecting the eternal unity that exists in the community of the Trinity itself, the, the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, uh, there's full agreement in the unity, there, the, in the Trinity. There's full um, uh, uniformity of purpose and will. The Father would choose a people out of all the nations of the world, out of all the periods of time, he would choose them to be his very own. The Son would agree with that choice and provide the redemptive work necessary for all of those that were chosen by the Father to be with him in eternity. And then the Holy Spirit agrees with the Father and the Son and says, I'll go and I'll apply the blood of Christ to every one of their hearts and regenerate them, bring them into a, a life uh, that can only come from God himself. So he says, I'm praying, Father, that they may be one, even as we are one, that their uh, attitude of unity would reflect the attitude between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit himself. He goes on in this prayer down to verse 21, and he says, Father, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that, or so that, for this purpose, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Here's the unified testimony of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, how it reflects the successful nature of redemption in Christ and, and the hope that we have of eternal glory. In verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that so that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me that, again, that they may be made perfect or complete in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. 
Now, this is not only experiential with the believers, uh, the family of God, but eternal unity among all believers. It's based on the revelation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is bringing us into a different level of unity, a unity that is not provided by human merit or human capacity, but a unity that is provided through the Holy Spirit himself, through the liberty that the Holy Spirit brings into the soul of the individual. Now the question is, is there a prayer that Jesus would uh, ask of the Father? Is there a petition that Jesus would ever ask of the Father that he would not answer? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Whatsoever the Son would ask of the Father, he would give the Son. Why? Because the will and the mind of the Son is in exact harmony with the will and the mind of the Father. So that oneness is seen in the Trinity, that oneness is seen in the family of all believers, but that oneness is seen particularly in the local church. And that's what I want to talk about more than anything this morning. I think it's something that we ought to strive for and work toward, as we'll see in a moment. But uh, before we get to our uh, study of Ephesians 4, I want to go to the Acts of the Apostles. We, we rejoice in the historical nature of the Acts of the Apostles, where Brother Luke is writing a commentary on the, uh, some of the events in the early days of the church. Um, and it's interesting that he would, he would specifically mention on ten particular occasions the unity of the church, the, the ability of the church to be of one mind and one accord. I'll just point out a few of those this morning for us. In Acts chapter 1, here they are waiting for the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that occurs in chapter 2. But listen to this in chapter 1 verse 14. These all continued with one accord. One accord. Mm -hmm. In prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. This term, one accord, homothumadon, uh, is found ten times in the book of Acts, and it's describing a oneness of mind or spirit. It could even be described as being one soul. One soul, one will, one purpose. And this is characteristic of the early church. They were continuing in this. They were not sporadic in their application. They were continuously pursuing those things that preserve peace, harmony, and unity in the early church. And then we find in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one accord in one place. They were uh, in one accord, one, they were one-souled with one passion and one sense of purpose, and they were awaiting the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that would shortly come to pass. Now, Jesus told them this, didn't he? He said, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. So the early church is waiting at Jerusalem to be empowered, to be enabled, to be uh, given a, a capacity to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. 
and that was to spread the gospel of the Son of God. And as they are waiting for the fulfillment of that promise, they're, uh, they're, they're praying, they're fasting, they're, they're seeking after the will of God in their life and in that generation, and they're trusting in the merit of that promise. They know that one day that spirit is going to come. You know, one of the reasons I'm, I'm studying along these lines, especially in recent months, is, is because I, I feel in my spirit a need for revival among the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, among the people of God. I believe that that's really the only hope of our nation. I'm not looking to a political party this morning or to uh, any form of governmental authority to bring about something in our nation that only God himself can provide. God is the one that can provide uh, revival among his people and through that revival, there's going to be a spirit of repentance. There's going to be a spirit of uh, being of one accord, of unity, and being unified. So that's the characteristic of the early church. Here they are, and they're of one accord in one place, waiting for one particular promise. And lo and behold, here that promise comes in great power, and now uh, all heaven is breaking loose. All the way through the book of Acts, you read about that kind of symmetry, that kind of passion, that, that kind of activity that was uh, animated in the lives of early believers. I call this primitive Christianity at its best. Now, go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Before we go to Ephesians, we're going to drop off at, first, uh, at Corinthians, and um, we're, we're going to discover something. We're going to discover even in the first century, there were uh, problems with maintaining unity. The church at Corinth had several serious problems. And there's, those problems uh, were the result of, um, perhaps uh, of some biblical ignorance. Uh, there were uh, circumstances there that were unique to the Greek culture of Corinth, certainly. And there's certain, certain other things that we could uh, specify that contributed to uh, the trouble that there was evidently at the church at Corinth. But the root of that trouble came as a result of... Uh, fleshly brethren uh, seeking to have their own will and way uh, among uh, the believers. Watch this. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye perfectly being joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, what I believe the Apostle Paul is pointing out is that uh, there were various ideas, there were various philosophies that were abundant in the culture and in, in the lives of these uh, church members. But he says, I want you to have this common denominator. I want you to uh, subscribe to the same confession. I, I want you to confessedly 
uh, stand upon the same doctrinal principles and practical principles that will guarantee unity, that will guarantee your peace. But the church at Corinth was a lot like us and in, in several ways. In verse 11 it says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. The word contentions there means unseemly wranglings or quarrelings. Now this I say, verse 12, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Now, these are factions within the same church body. There, there, were, there were one group uh, of, of believers there that says, well, I'll tell you what, we're, we're, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul came and started this church, and we're right with him, and uh, all of these other people that are uh, coming afterwards, well, I, I don't know how sound and how uh, beneficial they are, but, but we know that we're essential because we're of Paul. Well, others says, well, I'll tell you what, Paul is a good man and he's a good preacher, but he's not comparable to Apollos. I tell you, Apollos is eloquent. Apollos uh, is an orator. Apollos is polished in Greek culture and methods of debate. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to follow after him. And then somebody says, well, I think you're, you're both all wet. I, I think we need to really be close to Peter because remember, Peter preached that great sermon over in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And a lot of folks were converted under him and baptized under him. Uh, we're, we're going to follow after Peter. But I'm persuaded that probably the most dangerous part of this faction were the fourth the ones that says, ah, oh, uh, you're all wet. I, I'm not going to follow after a man named Paul or a man named Apollos or a man named Peter. I'm going to follow Christ. Now that sounds good. And that sounds, uh, that sounds real authentic. But in reality, I believe in this context, it sounds more pharisaical. In other words, we have more of Christ than anyone else. So we're of Christ, not of these other folks. See, those are the kinds of things that contribute to division. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 12, 25? He, he said, a house divided against itself cannot what? Can't stand. It can't stand long. And it can't stand well. And it can't stand firm. So Jesus and the apostles are uh, speaking the things through the Holy Spirit that will uh, build unity among God's people in a way that will reflect the image of Christ, in a way that will reflect the unity of the Trinity, in a way that will preserve peace. Now let's go to our main study this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. We all love the book of Ephesians because it's, uh, it's a declaration of the doctrine and practice of the early church. It's, it's a declaration of the things that God has done for man. And then the things that uh, born-again men are able to do for the Lord. It's interesting that the first three chapters are dealing with those doctrines that we love so well. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very practical 
they're 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 describing the Christian walk. They're they're describing what it means to be a Christian. For instance, uh, it's a Christian in chapter five, verse two, that is able to walk in love. It's the Christian, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in verse uh, eight of chapter five, that is able to walk in light. It is the Christian in verse 15 that is able to walk circumspectly or to say to walk in wisdom. These are Christian principles that are um, embodied in the heart and life of a people who have been born of the Spirit of God and who have been brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, At the close of chapter 3, he says, Unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The Apostle Paul is is rejoicing that all of the elements of salvation that we have in Christ are for the glory of God alone. No man is going to receive the glory for salvation. All glory is going to go to the Lord. Then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, in view of that fact, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you should walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Here the Apostle Paul is bringing the elements of our salvation in Christ into the practical context of day-to-day life. He, he's uh, going to use uh, four things that I hope will help each one of us as we pursue after true unity in the household of faith. There is a cost involved. There is a calling involved. There's character involved. And then there's conduct. And the Apostle Paul is, is presenting this to us in the context of his own experience. He says, for instance, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. The prisoner. There's a cost involved in following Christ. That cost is measured in different ways. In many uh, countries uh, of our world today, we hear about, read about uh, the martyrs that have been uh, sacrificed uh, on a lot of altars throughout the world. Islam is uh, opposed to Christians. Afghanistan, our uh, retreat from Afghanistan, exposed a lot of Christians in Afghanistan to the terrors of, of the Taliban. And we hear about that. We hear about the executions and all of the terrible things going on there. We hear about the war in Ukraine where uh, Christian churches are still there ministering to the people that are suffering during the war and the Russian soldiers are coming into those communities and uh, violating uh, those Christian uh, churches, uh, even to the point of death and mass graves. They're finding all kinds of things like that. But did you know that's not unusual? That, that's not at all unusual. Christians ought to expect rejection from an atheistic and agnostic world, a world driven by Satan, a world blinded by the lies of the devil, 
The Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter from a Roman prison, he says, I'm not ashamed to be a prisoner of the Lord. I'm not a prisoner because of some way in which I have broken the law. I'm not a prisoner because of some uh, evil uh, conduct that I've, uh, uh, or crime that I've committed. But I'm a prisoner of the Lord because I preach the gospel of the Son of God. He, he's not ashamed of that. He says, I'm, I'm ready to pay that cost. I'm ready to pay that price. So he says, there's a cost involved to serving the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech, and that means to earnestly entreat you that you, you, you Christian, you believers, you members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, listen to that. He said it's a calling. Uh, Christianity is a calling. I love what the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14. It's a high calling. He would say in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 that it is a heavenly calling. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, it's a holy calling. It's not something you take for granted. It's not something that uh, we cheapen on the altar of some kind of a bargaining tool with our culture. There is a a high and a heavenly and a holy calling connected to Christianity. And it is uh, an amazing, an amazing aspect of God's sovereign grace that he would call any of us to faith in his son. It's a, a wonder of sovereign grace. And he says, I want you to walk worthy of that. I want you to uh, walk worthy Worthy, worthy, uh, described by Matthew Henry as this. Worthy, not in the sense of deserving or earning the calling, but as corresponding to the nature of the calling itself. In other words, uh, Matthew Henry uh, would agree with us when we would say that the callings of God upon our life are not because of any inherent goodness in us. It's not because we have done something in order to obligate God to call us or to use us in his uh, service. But he's, he's saying, but there's something in the heart of a born-again child of grace that corresponds to the teachings of God's word, that, that has a desire to please God, that has a desire to serve God, that has a desire to honor God, and to seek after the unifying principles of God's word. This is something God gives us, and it is a gift of his wonderful grace. He says, I want you to walk worthy of that. I, I want your life, your, your conduct to line up with what you confess, with what you profess to believe about Jesus Christ. So it involves character and conduct. He says um, in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, I want you to do this with all lowliness, and that's humility, or, or the, the sense of our own uh, unworthiness uh, of the blessings of God. Is that the way you feel this morning, or do you feel that God owes you something? Does God owe us uh, freedom in America? Does God owe us uh, church membership? Does God owe us the church itself right here at Faulkner? I dare say he doesn't. He doesn't owe us anything. 
What we have is not because we're worthy of it, but because he willed to give it to us. So it's with lowliness that we come before you this morning with a heart full of humility because we realize that what we are this morning, we are because of God's grace. Isn't that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.10? I am what I am by the grace of God, and His grace was not bestowed upon me in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was given me. See, he was always acknowledging his debt to the grace of God. That always kept him humble. I believe that uh, the, the greatest uh, uh, divisive element in the church has always been related to pride. It's always related to self-worth uh, and, and, and self-grandizement. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says we need to follow the example of Jesus who was lowly and, and, and meek. Uh, meek. Uh, listen to what Matthew Henry said about meekness. That excellent disposition of the soul, which makes men unwilling to provoke others and not easily to be provoked or offended by others with their own infirmities. And it is opposed to angry resentment and peevishness in the house of God. I say, Matthew Henry, you've been reading my mail. Because what uh, things like this expose in my own life is that areas where I'm not as humble as I ought to be. Uh, areas where I'm not as lowly as I should be. Areas where perhaps I'm too judgmental of those that have less light or less experience. The Apostle Paul says, I'll tell you how to preserve unity. You do it with the lowliness of Christ. You, you do it in the manner in which Christ served. Listen to what Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That, that lowly mind, that uh, humble mind. You see, brothers and sisters, that's how we preserve our unity in the church with all lowliness and meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Uh, it's uh, power under control. And, and then he uses this word, long-suffering. That means uh, long-tempered. Uh, uh, the word actually comes from a, a compound Greek word that uh, literally means a resolved patience. A resolved patience toward those that differ with us. A resolved patience toward those that don't have the same understanding as we do. Those who have not the same life experience as we've, we've had. He says that's the way to preserve unity, uh, lowliness and meekness and long-suffering. And watch this, and forbearing one another, forbearing a continuous and unconditional posture of bearing the burdens of those with whom we may disagree. He says this is the way you do it. You do it in love. The love for Christ, the love for the truth, the love for the church, the love for the word of God. All of these things revolve around that agape love, that, that love that is um, uh, not natural. Uh, that love that is uh, the capacity of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer to embrace what God says, even if I don't understand all of it, 
Even if everybody else doesn't have the same understanding, I'm able to love them through Christ. I'm able to uh, love those that uh, even oppose themselves. And I do so in the spirit of Christ. That's how we're going to maintain unity in the house of God. He uses a key word in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavor is a very important word. Because unity in the church is not something that happens. It's not something that evolves. It's not something that accidentally shows up every once in a while. Endeavoring means uh, I'm willing to do what it takes to keep unity in the household of faith. You know, I'm willing to submit to the authority of the church. I'm willing to submit to the authority of the Word of God. I'm willing to submit to uh, the ordinances as they are given us by the Lord Jesus. I'm willing to submit that uh, to that because I desire peace and I desire unity. I am endeavoring. I'm laboring toward the end of unity in the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the word bond in, the, in that which is cohesive in that which is non-divisive, but that which holds us together on the right road, in the right way, and in the right manner for the right reason. So the oneness that we enjoy in the household of faith that we have in Christ is based upon the very character and conduct of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Drop on down in this same chapter, and he says this, He says, God has given us gifts, right? In verse 11, he's given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. For what? For what purpose? For the perfecting, the equipping of the saints. Um, This is is the work of the gospel ministry to bring God's people to a more mature understanding of the teaching of the word of God. And for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. These these are terms that are indicative of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, animated by the Spirit, trusting or standing upon the Word of God and the truth of God, and imparting into the lives of God's people not divisive and destructive things, but things that build up, things that provide for increased knowledge and, and spiritual maturity, and, and compassion and the love that Christ uh, has shown us. What, when, when are we to stop doing that? When are we stopping uh, working toward unity or embracing unity? When, how long are we supposed to keep that up? Verse this, uh, 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or complete man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what he just said? He says, I'll tell you how long you're supposed to do that. I'll tell you how long you're supposed to work for this kind of unity until you all look like Christ. Until you all reflect the image of Jesus Christ. Did you know that that's the ultimate design of salvation? 
The ultimate design of salvation is for you and I to look like Christ. For others to be able to see Christ in us. Jesus would say, um, for instance, in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. You're supposed to be reminding people of Christ. Jesus would say, in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify you? No. Glorify your Father, which is in heaven. In other words, showing the Father to the watching world. Showing Christ to the community. Showing Christ to one another. These are the things that are building unity in the lives of of God's people. Now, I want to go to one more verse. If you don't mind, go with me to the uh, uh, to the book of Second Timothy. In Second Timothy, uh, back up to in chapter one. Let's back up um, this morning to verse seven. Well, uh, actually, allow me to go to verse 5. Listen to what Paul says. He says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned or unmingled faith that is in thee. Now, he's speaking to Timothy, right? And he's saying, I'm, I'm reminded of your attitude, of your actions. I, I'm reminded of your devotion to Christ, which first dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. Now, brothers and sisters, I think uh, one of one of the things I, I just uh, reread. Uh, I've been studying the confessions of the Baptist family in America the last few months, and one of the things that stands out in the Philadelphia uh, introduction in 1742. The assembled ministers there had this complaint. They said to those meeting at that convention, where we have failed the most in uh, the advocating of our faith is we have neglected the family altar. We have neglected in our homes to teach these principles to our children. And because of that, we have seen a coldness come over the churches. Can you imagine? A coldness come over the churches. We, we've seen departures by our young people from these principles. And what they were trying to do was regather that unity of purpose and, uh, and encourage the fathers and the grandfathers uh, of disciples to leave a legacy of faith to impart these truths to their children and grandchildren now i'm a grandfather uh i've got two grandsons here i'm thankful for but did you know that the best thing i can impart to them this morning is the true knowledge of jesus christ and his word that 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 should be uh on the front part of our life 
uh, as Christians today, what we pass on to the next generation. The Apostle Paul is commending not only Timothy, but commending his mother and, and his grandmother for their legacy of faith, their, their ability to pass on these principles to the next generation. And he says in verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that you also stir up the gift that is in thee, uh, the gift of God which is in thee, by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Brothers and sisters, what, what's preventing us from sharing our faith even with those in our own families? You see, if I'm not willing to share my faith with those in my own family, what could possibly induce me to share it with a stranger, to share it with somebody else? If, 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 brothers and sisters, I'm not willing to share the gospel with people that, go, uh, that live across my street, why would I think God would bless me to share the gospel across the ocean? You follow me? We have to unify around this gospel vision. We, we have to be men and women of purpose like Timothy and his parents and grandparents were. Because God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us that power. He's given us the, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit with which I'm able to convey truth. Now somebody says, oh, Brother Jeff, I see where you're going with it. That, that means that you're a gospel regenerationist. You mean God cannot regenerate somebody unless they hear the gospel. You didn't hear me say that. You've never heard any of our ministers say that. We don't believe that. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. But just because I believe that regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit alone does not relieve me of the responsibility to convey gospel truth to those that God does regenerate. You follow me? So God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. He, he's given us the spirit of power, ability. Uh, um, uh, uh, he's given us a sound or healthful Mind. He's given us a true gospel. We've got something to share. We've got something to brag about. We've got something that the world around us needs. So I'm not, verse 8, be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to or in accordance with the power of God. God is the one that gives us the power. He gives us the ability to share the gospel with others. He gives us the, uh, uh, not only the ability, but he gives us the opportunity. How many of us fail? We do, we do. We fail to ask God to bring somebody into our life that we can share the truth with. You know, and sometimes they, they look a lot different than we do. Uh, sometimes that they have a different skin color. So, sometimes they have a different life experience. Uh, sometimes uh, there's they 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 just uh, don't appeal to us on a human level. But there's something inside our spirit that says you need to share the truth with this person. 
and leave the consequences to God. But many times we become afraid, and we, we do. We, we, we feel our own inadequacy. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us this morning <laughs> to unify around this vision. God has put us here on purpose. He's brought us to this place for this purpose, to energize our zeal in the household of faith, to energize us and to, to, to really challenge us to share the light and the life of Christ that is in us with those that he brings our way. And in closing, listen. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Are you ashamed? I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Uh, and I don't want you to be ashamed of it, but I want you to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with this holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. That tells me, brothers and sisters, that he saved us on purpose. And that purpose is not only that we would receive eternal life, but that purpose is so that we would reflect the image of the one that gave us eternal life. Amen? And he says, uh, and he says this, which was given us in Christ Jesus even before the world began, but is now made manifest, is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I want us to be unified around that word. I want us to be unified around that purpose. And I want us to seek after, endeavor to maintain unity among us so that we can fulfill his design for the church. Thank you for your good attention. God bless you.